So this morning, uh, we are once again in 2 Samuel, and um, going to be in uh, chapter 12. As uh, we get started, last time I, um, I referenced uh, Dr. Grudem's um, Systematic Theology book, and uh, I'm going to kind of return it to our little library shelf here, so that whoever wants to look at it, look at it, take it home. Um, we'll uh, just let that be our class copy and uh, just use it. Uh, I, I can think of nothing better than for uh, it to be uh, dirtied up and used and underlined and page turned and things written in the comments for other people to, to see. Uh, I think that would be wonderful. All right. We talked last week how the sin of David and his um, confession of repentance um, uh, led to his forgiveness. It led to his um, outpouring of remorse in Psalm 51. Uh, we looked at how it led to a more mature, thoughtful consideration of his sin and forgiveness and that sort of thing in Psalm 32. And then we looked at um, the concept of justification and that it is um, where uh, God accounts um, uh, the righteousness of Christ to us and does not account the sins that we've uh, committed to us, uh, which is the best deal that will ever be. So we're going to come back to uh, 2 Samuel 12 now and pick up with um, the rest of the story. Uh, we know that even though God forgives sin, that very often we are still left to deal with the consequences of our sin, and David is certainly going to see that. <coughs> is this still a little loud? We're good? Okay. So 2 Samuel 12, we'll begin with verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to us. How can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. 
Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then the servant said, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he says, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So this is a a really poignant scene that we see where um, and I don't know exactly at what point in Bathsheba's pregnancy David gets the news from Nathan that the child is going to die. But he gets that news or maybe it's right after the birth. It's a, a child who was born to you shall die. I, I'm not sure about this, but it certainly says that after he was born, he became sick. And, and then we see several things in this story. One thing that permeates this is the observation of David by his staff, uh, by the the people that were really close to him, right? Um, there was a um, a comment that verse seventeen, the elders of his staff, or rather, the elders of his house. Um, it was apparently the the norm that uh, the the senior members of your household, your servants, so to speak. Um, were there so long they became trusted advisors Um, and um, one of the commentators um, likened it to when Abraham was uh, asking the person in similar position the eldest of or the elder of the household the person that was in charge of all his affairs when Abraham was trying to arrange marriage for his son Isaac he called him over and he gave. He said, you know, go find him a wife. I don't want my son going back there, but I also don't want him marrying a local gal. Um, and come and promise me that you will do that. So this was a, a very, um, you know, heavy task that he was being done. And this was this strange concept where it says, come put your hand under my thigh and promise. Now, we generally do handshake deals now, um, which uh, I'd be a little more comfortable with. But um, in any event, this was this was a big deal, and so this same category of people, these same trusted advisors, the ones that have seen David probably at his best and worst. I mean, they were probably aware of what he was doing with Bathsheba. I mean, they. They've kind of been privy to a lot of this. They saw David fasting and praying. And then after the child dies, they see David get up 
change clothes, start eating again, and this is very confusing to them. And why would it have been confusing to them? Because this is opposite of what was typically done, right? Generally, in that culture, everything rocked along just fine as far as a person's outward you know, um, displays to the community until there was a death in the family and then you go into mourning. You put on mourning clothes and you know you may um, stop eating and you know all these other things and they were puzzled because David did it in reverse and that's part of what's kind of permeating this. The other thing to, to note as perhaps uh, you might reread this down the road is just how often the word dead shows up. You know, um, he became sick and the child died and servants were afraid to tell him that he was died. And then David wondered, you know, are they talking about him because the child's dead? And they're saying, well, we're afraid to tell him the child's dead. I mean, just dead, 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 dead. Just death permeates this whole thing. Again, the writer of this is making very clear that this was uh, the judgment that had been predicted is a judgment that happened. Call your attention to something else. In verse 22, as David is explaining himself, and he says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Now, he had been given prophecy by Nathan. Um, and we know back in the day, an Old Testament prophet, you were either 100% or you were dead. Uh, there was no, oh, I kind of missed this one. Um, you were giving a direct word from the Lord. So, David really didn't have strong reason to think that his child wouldn't die except for one thing. He had seen God give grace to him and he says, who knows? Or sometimes it's translated, perhaps. And all of us have probably been in a situation where we were praying for something that 99% of us believed wasn't going to be answered. But we hold on to that, perhaps. That who knows? And I think that's good. Because we don't know, right? God knows. And even when we might say the deck is stacked against a particular situation. We can line ourselves up with David, who said, who knows? Perhaps God will show grace in this situation. And no doubt there have been times when that did happen. There are some religious groups who pray for the dead. 
as if something is going to happen to them after their death based on the prayers of the people who are still living. This seems to be at least one text to say that that is not a biblical practice. And he says, you know, can I bring him back again? No. I'll shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, I saw one commentator that that said this is a verse of comfort to perhaps those who have lost a child in infancy and that David was referring to heaven. Um, and perhaps that is what this means. Um, typically, the Old Testament concept of the afterlife, though, was um, not what we think of heaven. Um, so I'll leave that to others to debate but he certainly understood that that there, there was a finality to this some people made the point um, in verse 18 on the seventh day the child died so this seventh day the number seven and apparently uh, making the point to um, to highlight this number seven David was the seventh son of in his family apparently the dever, the um, derivation of the of Bathsheba has to do with the number seven and at least the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament takes the story where just a few verses up where this hypothetical story of the rich wealthy person um, steals the sheep of the of the poor man and David says they're going to have to repay this many times over uh, some Hebrew in, in my Bible the ESV New American Standard says repay four times over but apparently it can go either way and, and the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is the form that was often used in New Testament days, that it's seven times over. And so this number seven keeps popping up and, and to, um, to just kind of, you know, repetition is used in Hebrew writing to, to make a point. Uh, also, the, died the seventh day so this would have been um, the day before that boy would have been circumcised um, so uh, just a lot of a lot of um, uh, interesting uh, stuff going on there uh, also this it might seem weird but if you think about it um, when I first read it, it it didn't register with me it said in verse 16 <clears throat> David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the went in part refers to his house, which for his stature probably would not have had a dirt floor. But then it says, and he laid on the ground. So um, to reconcile that, the commentators feel that 
he basically went into his campus, so to speak, and laid outside on the ground in the courtyard. Which is interesting because remember where Uriah camped out when he came from the battle? He laid outside in the courtyard. And so just as these writers are, are piecing together, together this story, there's, there's a lot of irony and reflection and repetition built into this because they really want to make the point that, um, that this prophecy that Nathan had of your household falling apart, um, it's coming true and, and there's all these remembrances there. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Solomon, we find here, had two names. Uh, professionally, we'll say, uh, he was known as Solomon. And the word Hebrew sounds very similar to uh, Salem, which is for peace and is tied in with Jerusalem, the city of David. So uh, there was a lot of meaning with the name Solomon that they gave him. But then they get this message from Nathan saying, um, you can call him Solomon, but the Lord's calling him Jedidiah because um, he has my favor. Uh, he's loved by the Lord. Now, we see this whole narrative about what's going on with um, David and Bathsheba and Uriah and all this sort of stuff is happening in the context of this war that's been going on with the Ammonites. And uh, I referenced this before. So now, just almost a head jerker to get us back to this other story that's been going on. It's like if you're ever reading a novel and like the chapter ends, and next thing you know, it's this whole other chapter, and it's like, but what was, I want to know what's going on. And then they don't go back to it for a long time. I hate it when they do that. Verse 26 Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. Remember, we said that. Rabbah um, is the current site of Amman, Jordan. That Amman, just a reflection that here we are, what, 3,000 or so years later, and, and that name is still sticking. And Joab, we know he was the chief commander, Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, moreover, and I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at their brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites, and then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Remember this whole chapter started 
it was the time of year when kings go to war. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, yeah. Uh, chapter 11, rather. In the spring of the year, when the, the time when kings go out to battle, David didn't go out to battle. He sent Joab. And finally, we see that now that Joab's done the heavy lifting and has taken this fortified city of Rabbah, um, now he calls in David to come in and get the glory because Joab was also a pretty good politician and knew that uh, it would weaken David's stature if he didn't come and, and finish it off. And so that's what happened. And um, I read in commentary that uh, as people have studied the history of this territory, they say the only time this area with all of its fortifications, the only time over the course of close to 1,500 years that it was ever captured was this event. And what happened was it sat on top of um, some natural underwater caverns, or rather underground caverns, that maintained water supply kind of from the inside so that uh, if you were going to siege a city, what's the first thing you do? You know, you dam up the river, you divert the stream, whatever, so that the people don't have water. It's an arid place, right? That's kind of important. Well, this kind of protected the city from that sort of a siege because they had their own underground water source. Well, apparently somebody sneaks in there and, and captures, um, you know, or controls this, this water source, and, and then the city had to give up. Uh, archaeologists have discovered this. They have found um, these underground caverns with steps that go down, and uh, they, you know, it matches up with what the Bible says. Uh, what a surprise! Um, anyway, so, so that's what happened. It's interesting. Verse thirty: He took the crown of the king from his head. The weight was a talent. Um, my Bible says around seventy-five pounds worth of crown, which. That's a lot of crown. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not sure how that would really go. But um, apparently this was a thing back in the day. Um, I read a reference where there was another king somewhere a few hundred years later. The crown was so heavy, it literally was unwearable. And they had to, he basically got under it. But they suspended it from the ceiling with a chain. And you would kind of get under it so it wouldn't, you know, break your neck, I guess. Um, there is such a thing as going too far, you know. I think there really is. Um, when Dad was in the jewelry business, I'm sure he would have been happy to sell somebody an unwearable <laughs> ring, um, where you would just have to <laughs> use two hands to bring it up and show it off. But uh, I don't know if you ever got that request in. Um, so finally, it's interesting. David finally shows up where he would have been, where he should have been to begin with. And if he'd been in Rabbah, he would have stayed out of a whole lot of trouble, right? You know, and there's a lesson there. You know, if we are where we're supposed to be, then we're not where we shouldn't be. Um, those things go together. All right. Now, pretty disturbing chapter here in chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time Amnon, David's son, loved her. So, in this first verse, we find who the characters are that are going to dominate the rest of this passage. Absalom, 
David's son, Amnon, David's son, and a sister of Absalom, Tamar. Now, we learned weeks ago that uh, David had a number of wives. Um, We've heard the story of some of these where um, his first wife that he was given was Michael, right, Saul's daughter, but then Michael was given to somebody else. So the first wife that David took for himself was the mother of Amnon and Absalom, the first and third sons of David's first kind of official wife or taken wife. Um, We don't hear about the second son. The assumption is that that child probably died in infancy. But here we have um, two sons by by, uh, two different mothers, Absalom and Amnon. And then we have Tamar, the full sister of Absalom. So those are the characters. Verse 2. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, if, if you read this, it seems to leave a lot out, unless you're our age and you can fill in the blanks, and then you kind of know what's going on here, right? You kind of figure out we have this half-brother looking upon Tamar, who is there in the court, who is beautiful, and he is lusting after his half-sister. That's what's going on. We know this. And it says it seemed impossible for Amnon to do anything to her. So the point is, he wants her. He wants her bad, but he realizes he can't have her. Verse 3, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. So this is a cousin. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? So this is, you know, around the seats of power, you always have conniving people, right? You just do. Um, You just do. And so... No matter who occupies the seats of power, no matter what country you're talking about, you can, you can just write it down. There are gonna be influences around that person that are just there because they sense a chance to get a little power for themselves, to ingratiate themselves, to, uh, that's just what they do, right? Uh, I don't know if you have any, uh, if you guys watched like the, or read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I think the, the film does a really good job of this one section where the king has been so heavily influenced by this person that's whispering into his ear that it just changes him for the worse. And you kind of get that idea for this Jonadab. In any event, he says, uh, Abnon says to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister which is a nicer way to say, I love my sister. In any event, Jonadab said to him, here's what you do. 
Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight that I may eat it, see it, and eat it from her hand. So Amnon, taking his crafty cousin's advice, it says, verse 6, So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Amnon kind of freestyles a little bit here and he says, um, the, um, Jonadab said, give me bread to eat. And Amnon says, no, have her make a couple of cakes in my sight. And um, apparently it's, um, there was heart-shaped cakes. Um, I don't know what context leads them to say that, but I can give you the references. <coughs> Which is kind of weird, right? Verse 7, Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house, prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes, and she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I, that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. We're going to see several statements with an amazing clarity and presence of mind to try to resist. And basically she says, no way, what are you thinking? You're a fool. She says it four different ways. Don't violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. So... There's a verse, right? She's quoting a verse. Leviticus 18.11 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter. In other words, your sister, even if it's a different mom, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. So she's saying, look, we don't do this. Verse 13, as for me, where could I carry my shame? Point number two, this would devastate me. Moreover, point number three, and as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. You're first in line for the throne. What are you thinking? What an idiot you will be. And then verse, or rather the point number four, which may have been a crafty tactic to buy her some time, says, look, just don't do this. Go speak to the king because he'll probably bend the rules and let you have me. That would be preferable to what you're trying to do. Considering the culture of the day and the relative lower status of women, 
This is a remarkable defense that she has. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Um, he raped her. Violated just sounds a little too tame. Verse 15, as often happens with sin, it says, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. So now, because he can't look with, at her without seeing his own sin, is repulsed by her and says, Get up, go. Amazingly, she says, No, my brother, for this is wrong, and sending me away is greater than the other thing you did to me. But he would not listen. He called the young men who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence, and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king's dress. So she had a uniform that said, I mean, she was daughter of the king. She had royal robes that were consistent with that stature. His servant put her out, bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Devastated. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, sister. He's your brother. Don't take this to heart. In other words, this wasn't your fault. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. She would have had nowhere else to go. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So the two responsible men in her life that should have been taking care of this justice or, or injustice and bringing her justice, they each had their own method of either dealing or not dealing with this, and they were both wrong. We'll see that in a minute. I'll hurry. Verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all his king's sons. Now, we'll remember that sheep shearing was a big deal, right? That's when you got the harvest. That's when there was a festival. You know, the county parade comes into town. They set up the Ferris wheels. It's a big deal. Verse 24, Absalom said to the king, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. In other words, come see. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. Absalom pressed him. He would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, Well, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why shouldn't he go with you? Or why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? 
Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. In the interest of time, I'll let you read the rest, but you probably have. Um, the king gets word of this. David gets word of this. He, he gets mistaken information that all the sons have been killed. So he's pretty devastated about that. Um, he's informed, no, it's just Amnon. He's still upset. Um, verse 34, Absalom flees. He goes back to his grandfather's house, his mom's dad. Verse 37, but Absalom fled, went to Tamal, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled, went to Geshur, and was there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So David was initially upset about this, but with the passage of time, he starts to feel better about the loss of Amnon, who again would have been first in line for the throne. And now he's wanting to reconnect with Absalom um, because, you know, there's a son. So, so where's Tamar's point of view in all this? You know, can you imagine her having to deal with this lack of justice for two years? Right? Uh, so she doesn't get to see anything for two years. Um, and instead of him being brought to trial, and so to speak, he kind of gets murdered, just pure revenge. It's more about revenge than it is justice. And this whole thing sets up this power struggle, as we'll see in the coming chapters, between David and Absalom, so that um, with the first person with a claim to the throne now dead, Absalom is free to make his case for why he shouldn't be king. And there's this whole rivalry going on where if we go back to verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Big whoop. He was angry. Did he do anything about it? He was ready to kill the rich man who stole the sheep from the poor man and make him pay four times older over, but his own daughter is raped and he doesn't do anything about it. If he had, then Absalom probably wouldn't have, well, he wouldn't have had to have this crazy plan. He wouldn't have later become a threat to David which we'll find out he does all because the king in addition to managing his own household had a responsibility for the whole nation because the king didn't do anything why didn't he do anything it's really hard to punish somebody for the exact same thing you did yourself right he couldn't well he could have but he didn't. And it all harkened back. So this, this devastation that follows David's house, this isn't like just divine punishment. This is the, this is the natural order of things, right? He, he was so guilty, he couldn't say anything 
Because what's he going to say? Well, you did the same thing. You did the same thing. And worse, you didn't just take this guy's wife, you had him killed. On that happy note, I'll make the point that one in five college women will be sexually assaulted during their years in college. About one of every nine women in general has been assaulted. It would be against statistics if anyone in here has not been assaulted. But perhaps because rape is so horrible to think about, it tends to get swept under the rug, which in essence is what was happening with Tamar. About three or four years ago, um, a person that whose name is well known to probably all of you, um, a person of great standing in the Southern Baptist Convention, was relieved from his position because he tried to sweep a rape under the rug, or at least a potential rape, and tried to discredit the woman that said she was raped. And decades, decades of service to the Lord get tarnished because you swept it under the rug too proud to admit that something happened like that and to talk about it. And if you go back and read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you'll find out that the fault of the people there, it says in the Bible, was pride. Which is crazy, but that's what it was. All right, as you know, we take the verses as they come uh, and do with them what, uh, what we can. Um, comments on any of that? I go back to um, chapter 12, verse 20. The first thing that David did was to change his clothes, and before he took care of himself, he worshiped God. Mm -hmm. So that said to me that we need to worship God through our storms and look to him first before we look to ourselves. That's a little better yeah. than ending on rape. <laughs> it is, and it is true, and the other thing is, too, after all this happened, David was still king. He was still able to go fight in battle. He was still able to do, you know, God didn't take him from his position. Um, but again, the scripture doesn't give us untarnished heroes. In fact, I thought it was interesting. Of all the people mentioned in the Bible, there are only three men listed where the Bible doesn't have anything negative to say about them. Do you know who they are? Just three. Think about that. Think about that. Only three. Any guesses? Nope. So the Bible doesn't have anything bad to say. I mean, God took Enoch, so that's good. But the, the one that one commentator said that there were only three, you know, one was Jesus, of course. 
Daniel. And although some people quibble about this one, uh, Joseph. I thought that was really interesting. Anyway, um, I put that out there. I don't know if that's true or not. Let's close. <laughs> Father, I thank you that you have this all figured out. You are a God that handles it all so well so that there is grace and there is forgiveness and there is compassion and there is understanding and there is restoration, but there is also justice. And we pray that you would continue to work in all of us as we try to um, grow in all of those areas ourselves. We thank you for your son. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.